Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Sartouris, an evolution biologist and futurist whom I've known for 30 years. We first met when she was living on the Greek island of Idra, where the Scientific and Medical Network held a memorable meeting on science and consciousness in the autumn of 1995, just before the birth of my daughter, Charlotte, who is producing these podcasts. We met again when she was living in Dea on Mallorca, which is also the home of the American poet, Robert Graves. She now lives in Hawaii. Elizabeth has had a multifaceted career, starting with a postdoctoral fellowship at the American Museum of Natural History. She has also taught at MIT and the University of Massachusetts, as well as being a fellow of the World Business Academy and the Findhorn Foundation, and an honorary member of the Scientific and Medical Network. She's a co-founder of the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network and of Rising Women, Rising World. She's convened international symposia on the cultural foundations of science and worked with Willis Harmon when he was president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences Biology Revisioned, and we will be talking about his influence in this podcast. Elizabeth's latest book is Gaia's Dance, the story of Earth and Us, her take on James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis that sees the Earth as a self-organizing and self-regulating ecosystem where life and environment co-evolve with each other. She has recently contributed a piece called Letter for the Future in the significant new volume our moment of choice, reflecting on our collective challenges and how our collective vision can secure our survival. Elizabeth brings her wise and creative presence as a planetary elder. Elizabeth, welcome. As you're an expert in exactly the, what the significance of imaginal cells is, um, I'd like you to start by telling us a little bit about imaginal cells so that our listeners can understand their their meaning and significance. Well, aloha from Hawaii to you and to everyone who's listening or watching us. As an evolution biologist, uh, probably my, my biggest insight was to see that the Darwinian story was not enough, that nature was not all about hostile competition, and uh, that actually there was just as much or more cooperation going on in nature than competition. And by studying the whole uh, 3.8 billion years or so of Earth's history, which is what biological evolution is about, I came to see that as a maturation cycle that keeps repeating over and over in the course of evolution. So uh, when you apply that then to humanity, we are just at the cusp of getting from a competitive predatory phase to a mature cooperative phase where we live more lightly on the earth. And so I adopted the metaphor of metamorphosis, uh, which I got originally from Nori Huddle in her little children's book called Butterfly. And that story is the story of the very predatory caterpillar that ju just chomps down up to 300 times its weight in a single day and gets so bloated uh, you know, being very destructive on its on its uh, plant supply, 
uh, it gets bloated and hangs itself up and the chrysalis forms uh, by hardening the skin of that caterpillar, unlike the, the uh, cocoons that are spun by silkworms, this is a chrysalis. And inside that chrysalis, imaginal cells begin to come out of the, the folds of the skin of the original caterpillar, where they have been all through its life, like stem cells. Uh, that's the easiest way to understand them. They are a kind of stem cell, and they have their own DNA. And why this is such a great uh, metaphor for what we're going through is that the, the predatory economy of the caterpillar is completely inappropriate to how a butterfly functions. And so a new DNA has to come into play. And as the caterpillar dissolves, the imaginal cells link up and eventually form that butterfly that lives so lightly on the earth afterwards. So it makes a good, good metaphor for the transition we're in. Very much. And I'm also struck by the parallel of your thinking with Rian Eisler and the movement from a domination to a partnership society. That, that seems to be a parallel process. Uh, just going on to, to, to your own um, life and development, your own metamorphosis, um, Elizabeth, uh, can, can you tell us maybe about a, a shaping moment in your choice of work? How, how did you come to be an evolution biologist? <laughs> well, uh, I, I became an evolution biologist because from childhood, where I was allowed to run free in nature, I was asking what I didn't know were the great philosophical questions of the ages, but I wanted to know who are we people and where did we come from and where are we headed? <laughs> and that's what made me uh, an evolution biologist and futurist. But what happened to me was that uh, by the time I had completed my education finally through a PhD and, and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Museum of Natural History, which you mentioned in introducing me, um, I, I, the whole thing I'd been taught, that Darwinian model of human nature as just endlessly competitive and a universe that was running down where, where it was just a, a, a struggle against an entropic tide was life, life even defined as neg entropy, the negative of a negative kind of, there was something wrong with this. It didn't fit. It was like a, a suit that was too tight, perhaps a chrysalis that I had to break out of. And so I, I went off to Greek islands to write novels to explain the human condition to myself. And one day after having written a couple novels, most of which I burned before I left Greece, I was walking in the woods on my little island and a walking stick fell onto my arm. Now this stick insect looks actually just like a little brown stick with, with the kind of legs that are on daddy long leg spiders that you can hardly see the legs. So this little stick seems to be floating up and down your arm as it walks around. And I burst into tears because I hadn't seen one since I was a child. And in that moment, I realized I still want to explain evolution. <laughs> so I, I dropped the novel writing and I went back to saying, let me try to write it for children. And so I, I went to my desk and I wrote out, because that way you can make a very simple story and then put the grown-up information and in, plug it in. Mm. And I sent that first version of, of uh, my first book. Uh, and and uh, the Gaia's Dance book I most recently published is closest to that original storytelling form. I sent it to James Lovelock. 
And he uh, said, am I doing it right? You know, <laughs> does this make sense? And he wrote a lovely letter back saying, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. It's just the way I tell it to my grandchildren. Even if somebody picks on you for something or other, go for it. And uh, so that was a lovely piece of advice and encouragement. Yes, wonderful. Metaphor. It just fell out of nowhere, as it were. There was yes. a, a synchronicity in it. And what, while you were at the museum or, or, or at that point of your development, did you have um, any particular mentor um, who was important for you? I mean, you mentioned Jim Lovelock, but um, was there anybody else there? Well, actually, while I was at my postdoctoral fellowship, I read the first uh, article Lovelock had published on Earth's atmosphere. Ah. And, and But it turned out later that that article apparently hadn't been published when I read it. Uh, and I know the exact timing of when I was at the museum. And Jim later said, no, it was published, you know, after I had left the museum. Now, that wasn't the only time I had time warp experiences. But, uh, but I immediately gravitated toward that concept of Gaia the moment I, I first encountered it. So in a sense, he goes all the way back to my postdoctoral fellowship. <laughs> yes, um, and that's, that's very interesting. And then um, were there any other books that were really formative um, oh, that yes. you were reading at the time? You see, when I, when I uh, got through with that postdoctoral fellowship and I moved from New York to Boston, uh, this is very early 70s, I very quickly started exploring esoteric literature because the, the suit was too tight, because I was struggling with, with this scientific concept. I decided to just dive into to the opposite world, the world I, that you don't believe in as a scientist. And yes. I read everything from Gurdjieff to the founders of Findhorn. And, and especially important to me were the Seth books of Jane Roberts, which I'm sure you know. Yes, and those Seth books, starting with the early books like Seth Speaks, and there were about a dozen of them, uh, later, much later in the 90s, I was in a group of about 25 leading-edge scientists talking about whether consciousness was primary or not. And I finally got up the nerve to say, how many of you read the Seth books of Jane Roberts and had your worldview seriously affected by them? And two thirds of the people in that room raised their hands. How incredible. So I knew by that time I had spent 13 years in Greece and was back in the United States, right? And so I kept on reading them. And to this day, I go back to them. When the pandemic began, I went back to uh, the individual and the nature of mass events in which he talks about pandemics as soul agreements and viruses and their role. I mean, it's the most intellectually appealing channeled works that have ever, ever been written, in my opinion. So those books were extremely important to me. Yes. Um, the, <laughs> the other book that I found quite fascinating in, in, in that series is not so well known is the After Death Journal of a Philosopher, which purports to come from William James. William James book. And I found that extraordinarily interesting because I, I, I've read a lot of William James and I, I could get a sense that it was the same mind. At least that was my impression. That's the book that defines the, the ultimate source of everything as the loving presence. Beautiful term for cosmic consciousness. Very, very beautiful. The loving presence. Well, that certainly is a, a light motif we need to, to dwell on. 
I think that, presence is my favorite word in the English language. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and then coming on to um, your view of consciousness, obviously this is related to your view of life. Um, was there anything that any experience you had which you know, redefined or refined your your understanding of, of consciousness? Yes, I decided to uh, try to track the paradigm shift. Willis Harmon and I talked a lot about the paradigm shift. And we were very aware that the, that the quantum physicists, uh, the fathers of quantum physics, could not explain their findings in terms of the worldview they had been taught as what I call Western scientists. Yes. And so all of them, one by one, publicly acknowledged going to Vedic science for their worldview. And so it was obvious to myself and to Willis that the paradigm shift had to do with incorporating fundamental assumptions of Vedic science into Western science somehow. So I decided to, to try doing a, a symposium, uh, an international symposium on the foundations of science to track that paradigm shift by having the scientists who had PhDs in Western science, but who were paradigm shifters, write out the fundamental assumptions they'd been taught and then the ones they had adopted. Okay, I got a sponsor who, who helped me to do this by funding it in Hokkaido, Japan. <laughs> and there I was in, in this uh, most amazing uh, seven-star hotel where the G7 had just met and, and you know, five or six-star hotel and huge picture window, gorgeous Japanese scene in front of me. Wake up one morning feeling the presence of Giordano Bruno in the room. Yes. And of course, Bruno got the omnicentric universe even before the heliocentric universe mm. replaced the, the Earth-centered universe, right? So he is one of my heroes. And so suddenly it seemed like there were uh, scientists from history on my side and it became very, very spiritual experience. And suddenly I realized that this was not, it was like an epiphany. This was not about tracking the paradigm shift of Western science. This was the acknowledgement that there were different sciences equally valid in the world and that that Vedic science should be looked at in its own right. And so I shifted it from saying, wow, now we're doing the same task, writing the assumptions out, but these are the assumptions of Vedic science, which is consciousness-based, and the other Western science and, and what happens, you get two valid sciences with antithetical statements, such as Western science saying consciousness em is, it emerges from matter, while Vedic science says, no, matter emerges from consciousness. Okay. So I, have, I now use the, the metaphor of a keyboard, which is just as important as the maturation cycle and maybe even more so because all scientists seem to agree that the universe can be seen as made of vibrations. Yes. Of course, yes. there's a Hazrat Inayat Khan in, in his book, The Source of Everything is Sound. And, and I had to really struggle with why is cosmic sound of a higher vibration than light? Because there are two kinds of sound. There's physical sound that travels on airwaves, and then beyond light on the spectrum, there's the cosmic sound. 
And of course, the Bible starts with, in the beginning was the word. And, uh, you know, this, this concept is very much there in Sufism and, and other uh, places. So if you think of an infinite piano keyboard and have matter in the low keys, the slow vibrations, then go up the keyboard to the energy part of the keyboard, electromagnetic energy, Western science defines reality as whatever is measurable with their physical instruments. So they can do matter, and, and then they learned how to measure aspects, certain aspects of electromagnetic energy, and then they're stuck because the physical instruments can't seem to read what happens further up the keyboard, exactly. Where, exactly. where it's no, more, no longer material. Now, Einstein came along and showed us that you can transpose the music up and down between the energy and matter parts of the keyboard because matter is energy and energy is matter, right? It's all vibrations equals mc squared. But there, Western science is stuck. Where does Vedic science come in looking at the same universe? It starts at the other end, in the high keys, in pure consciousness, where all of these vibrations are like the waves on a, on a deep, still sea, right? And I just call, use another metaphor of an ocean. Um, and it's, but it's limitless. So the, the Vedic scientists and the Taoists do the same thing. They just slow the vibrations down to get into the energy region and then on into the matter region. So they can do the whole keyboard while Western science gets stuck because of its fundamental belief that it has to be measurable with physical instruments. So in a sense, Western science is stuck in, in what the Vedics call the illusion of Maya the illusion that 3D physical reality is all there is. And the other beauty of the keyboard is not only can you see how these two sciences can have such opposite views of things, but you also see that you, there's no point in trying to integrate uh, spirit and, and matter because the problem is that we took them apart, that we put some that we separated the keyboard down the middle somewhere. <laughs> just, just in terms of, our, of the way that we constructed things. Exactly. This um, uh, contrast, if you like, between what Brian Goodwin used to call a science of qualities and yes. science of quantities. And, and so, as you've already said, the, the Western science uh, focuses on measurement and quantification, whereas consciousness is something which is inherently qualitative. And everything in nature is what I call plays the whole keyboard. There is nothing in nature that isn't conscious, right? Uh, because everything includes the vibrations of the entire keyboard. The only thing in the cosmos I know of that can't play the whole keyboard are the non-physical entities, like the angels. And they say they're lined up for human bodies. Why? because they can only play in the high keys until they incarnate into the matter end. From the matter end, you can get all the way through meditation and, and such practices, you can get all the way to the source field. And then tell me a bit about uh, Biology Revisioned and, and Willis Harmon and, and the work you did together, because he was also working on uh, the foundations, metaphysical foundations of science. Yeah, well, that, that was exactly that. We, we were playing around with, was the paradigm shift uh, about one science morphing into another, or were we inventing a new science? You know, what was this a contextual holarchic model or a separate sciences model? And so, biology revision took. Uh, we we decided to just have dialogue about the premise of what if consciousness were the source of all reality? 
how would that change the field of biology and how would that in turn change society? And I remember reading the books, but of course I knew Willis um, quite well. Oh, one of my other <laughs> guests is, is Marilyn Schlitz. She had a, a very close relationship with, with Willis and all these yes, neuroetics. And then how does your understanding of, of life and consciousness, Elizabeth, affect and influence the way you, you live your life? Well, especially because of the, the Seth book's view of everything uh, happening within consciousness and the, the concept that he brought into the modern world, uh, he, Seth, brought into the modern world the term or the phrase, we create our own reality. And the way I take that is we are not responsible for everything that happens to us, we as individuals. However, we are 100% responsible for our reactions to what we encounter in life. And that is my guiding principle uh, by understanding consciousness, by trying to play the whole keyboard. I have to always be ready to take responsibility for recognizing how much role I play in creating my worldview from which I live. My worldview is my set of beliefs. My set of beliefs determine my behavior. And so being aware that you within consciousness are a co-creator uh, so that everyone is a co-creator in the mass reality, but each of us must take 100% responsibility for what we create in our reactions. Viktor Frankl said that about his experiences in Auschwitz. You can choose your attitude, even if you can't choose your circumstances. Exactly. And boy, um, it's important now, isn't it? <laughs> oh, very much so. And then uh, you, you were also instrumental in founding the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network. And I'm, I'm going to be having a conversation with Apila uh, and Leroy Little Bear um, in the next fortnight. Uh, could you, could you um, sort of maybe add to what you've been saying about the keyboard uh, in terms of how that approach complements the Vedic? Well, after the Hokkaido Symposium, where we looked at the axioms, the fundamental worldview of Western science and Vedic science, I got to do another one in Kuala Lumpur for Islamic science. The Islamic scientists didn't know what it was I wanted them to do when I asked them to write out their fundamental assumptions, but eventually they got the hang of it and started doing it. And as in Hokkaido, we got hundreds of different statements of fundamental beliefs within that science. But now I was really into what we need is a global consortium of sciences. So I wanted to do Taoist science next in China and then the indigenous sciences because I was a co-founder of the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network, which is was mostly founded by indigenous people. And... Uh, the point of it was, first of all, to let the young people in indigenous cultures know that to respect their cultures for having done real science as well. And also to, you know, broaden this base of the global sciences. And for instance, I spent a year in the Andes studying the ancient Inca and pre-Inca and post-Inca native cultures of the Andes. And they had astronomy, they had sociology, they had agronomy, they had physics, they had chemistry. You know, it was all there. Everything that we call an aspect of Western science, they too studied. And so this is very important to understand that 
that the most sophisticated indigenous cultures that preceded the whole conquistador era, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which was pretty backward compared to some of these. For example, the, the Haudenosaunee Indians who were on the territory that the founding fathers of America wrote their constitution on <laughs> to build a republic with, with, under democratic rule, they were on the territory of Indians, of Native Americans, that had lived for centuries and centuries under a great law of peace, which was a constitution uh, that kept the peace. And Benjamin Franklin, one of the authors of the constitution, was in love with what the Indians were doing. And he brought some of their ideas to his fellows, but they wouldn't let the women Indians come to their meetings and you know all this stuff was going on. So they, they adopted the tripartite government of checks and balances that's in the US constitution, but they left out women, children, the future and nature. So these, these were very sophisticated cultures that had sciences that knew exactly what they were doing. And there were divisions of labor. The, the men tamed the game in the forest so that they could commune with the animals and they, they would volunteer for the hunters to take them down to feed the people and the people would give back to nature. And, you know, this was all good science. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. In the Andes, half the food eaten in the world today was developed through scientific agronomy in the, in the Andes. We owe these people a, a great debt, and, and that's part of you know, recognizing. And it reminds me, um, in general, our conversation is asking the question, who is the knower and how are they knowing? And of a story that you might have read about Jacob Needleman uh, when he met D.T. Suzuki. And he was a young graduate student, having just done his PhD, very full of himself, thought he was very brilliant, and he had a lot that he wanted to talk to at a kind of intellectual level to Suzuki. And so he got going with his first question. And Suzuki looked at him and said, who is asking the question? It's a Deepak Chopra question. Too. Yes, and who, <laughs> so that really floored him. And, but it was a sort of, it was an encounter of, of different mindsets, different mentalities, different approaches. And as you've been talking about this as well, we need to become more self-reflective, particularly in science as to, how we're approaching things and, and what our assumptions are, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, and therefore to become aware of this rather than just taking it for granted and pretending like the positivists in the 1930s, yeah. there was no philosophy behind what they were saying. And to be accountable for the way we humans, what do we do with our science? What's the point of being scientists if it isn't, you know, the, the ancient Greek point of science, which they called philosophias, philosophy, was their word for natural science was the love of wisdom. And the point of doing science was to get guidance in human affairs by studying nature, which is what all the indigenous cultures did. But the Europeans just completely decided nature was dark and feminine and had to be tortured and exploited and all those crazy things that got us way, way off track. So it's very important for us now to say, we obviously can't run our economy this way. Now, nature's been doing economics for as long as there's been a nature, but it's always a circular economy. There's never any waste. And you know, we have to take these things seriously now as we become a butterfly species. We've got to learn from nature in ways that we have never before. We, 
We have biomimicry now. We have to take that very seriously at all levels, not just the microscopic, but, but at all levels. How do we fit ourselves into what I call an ecosophy uh, is, you know, economy and ecology are both Greek words. And ecology is ecos, the household, and logos. And the logos is uh, the design of the household. So the ecology is the household design. Economy is the household with nomos, the law. How to buy what rules do you run the economy? We separated those. And we made the ecology subservient to the economy so that the economy could exploit the ecology for its purposes. If we turn that upside down and make ecology subservient to nature, <laughs> to the ecology, the economy fits into the ecology, then we get the wise society, the ecosophia, ecosophy. <laughs> Which is obviously what we and many of our friends have been working for for you know decades. What sort of time scale do you see this actually arriving in? We would like to have everything go by nice linear time scales because we're so into linearity, right? Mm -hmm. We want the sea level to rise a centimeter at a time, nice and gradually. It ain't going to happen that way. We can get a couple of meters of sea level rise overnight. And once the sea skirt ice is, is melted completely away in Antarctica and Greenland and the ice starts sliding off the rock, it's going to be an exponential curve of the kind that if you put, uh, you know, rice grains on a chessboard and double them each square, lies in a jar, lily pads on a pond, whatever. Two days before the end, it's only a quarter full. It took a long time to get a quarter full and suddenly, whoop, whoop, you don't have any time left. So when the California fires double in one year, double in one year, that is the worst kind of uh, exponential curve. What happens next year if this doubles again? We don't have any time left, it's, but fortunately, it's always now. Yes. And, and I, <laughs> that's uh, something Western science has completely swept under the rug along with everything we experience in our consciousness which they also don't want to deal with. <laughs> it well, is always now, and we cannot get out of now. We can think about the past and the future. We can make up that timeline, but we're making it up. And so I say, yes, it's always now. And even if Lovelock is right, and we end up with only half a billion humans left when this difficult crunch, that this, this perfect storm of crises we're trying to navigate now, when we're through that, then I tell everybody I come in contact with, act as if you and your loved ones are going to be among the survivors and think about how to, to arrange your life right now so that you have the best possible chance of being among the survivors. Right, well, that's very good advice. And just coming to the end now, Elizabeth, is there a, a proverb or maxim or quotation that means a lot to you? Absolutely. Rumi, the poet, Rumi, one line. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Brilliant. Love it. <laughs> we know what to do. And okay. everybody can do something that makes their heart sing toward that better world. Whether you want to write poetry or grow organic veg or do voter registration or whatever healing, do it. And draw others to you by, by loving what you're doing. They will come. 
And if one generation decides all warfare is a stupid waste of energy besides being cruel, then racism is gone, war on nature is gone. Just think about all the kinds of wars that we are waging as conquistadors that are over, done. Then, then we too can transform ourselves with extraordinary speed. Into that butterfly. And then finally, if you were looking back on your life um, with what you know now, is there any advice you'd give to your younger self? I don't think so. And the reason for that is that I'm very aware that with it always being now, you actually can change your own past. And I'm not sure I want to. It's not that I've led a perfect life. It's not that I've never hurt anyone or, not, or made no mistakes, but it got me to where I am now just as I lived it. And therefore, I would not give myself other advice. I can do that in other incarnations. <laughs> Very good. I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your imaginal inspiration and, and explaining imaginal selves to us. I found our conversation really, really transformatively inspiring, and I hope our listeners will as well. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Much aloha.